Net-A-Porter presents the Incredible Women podcast, Series 6, Champions of Change. Welcome to the Incredible Women podcast. In this series, we're sitting down with champions of change. Women who are leading the charge, really pushing for progress through their work and driving for change for themselves and others. Some of these incredible women you'll already be familiar with and others we're excited to introduce you to. I'm Kay Barron, Fashion Director at Net-A-Porter, and I'm absolutely delighted to be joined for this episode by Leila Yavari. Look, Iranian women are the engine. Uh, they're really driving this, this particular revolution, but it's all of Iranian society who feel that it's time for real change. You might recognise Leila from her days as a fashion director, as she became something of a favourite of international street-style photographers. But there's far, far more to her than fashion. She has dedicated her life to human rights and environmental concerns, working with businesses and non-profits as a strategic advisor. And now she's developing programs to support the women in her native Iran in their battle for dignity and democracy. And that just scratches the surface. So let's meet her to discover more. Leila, welcome. It is such a pleasure speaking with you. Um, how are you and where are you today? I'm very well. Thank you, Kay. It's a pleasure to, to be speaking with you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I am in Los Angeles. How is LA today? It's beautiful day, as always. <laughs> oh, good. I mean, early in the morning. So thank you very much for taking the time to do this. This season, we are celebrating Champions of Change in the podcast, which is obviously what we feel you are. But do you see that in yourself? Um. I think of myself as a, as a channel. I'm really just here as a representative of um, the hopes and aspirations of the women of Iran who are sacrificing life and limb as we speak um, for the right to bodily autonomy, freedom of expression, and democracy. I think they're the real champions of change. I mean, the champions of change for me are women like Shirina Ebadi and Nasrina Sutudeh who have dedicated and sacrifice their lives for this cause. Um, yeah, so I'm really just a spokesperson. <laughs> you're, the, you're the voice for them, but that's an incredibly important position to be in as well. Um, but you left Iran as a baby. How does it feel to watch what's happening from afar and have you returned? Yeah, so I have returned. I've been back to Iran twice. The second time I went back to Iran was to do field work um, for, for my graduate work. I think to watch things from afar, um, Iranians feel a combination of guilt, helplessness, hope, and despair. But I think more than anything, we feel a tremendous duty and responsibility to lift up our voices. We're sitting in our privilege, uh, oftentimes in places where we have freedom of expression and freedom of assembly. And so we have a, an opportunity and a duty to share with others what is happening to these brave um, protesters inside of Iran. Because I want to take you back. The work you're doing is is incredible, but it's been quite a journey to to this point. And obviously we met before when you were working with Space for Giants. But it started with modeling when you were when you were studying for your PhD at the University of Berkeley what kind of freedom did modeling give you in terms of what you were doing and kind of take you away from maybe what you thought you'd end up doing 
Listen, I was always very earnest and quite bookish. And I think that modeling was very good for me because it exposed me to an entirely different world of creativity and self-expression and fun. I think I started modeling when I was 20 years old. I had been scouted many times growing up in L.A., but I was never um, given permission (laughs) to model. (laughs) My family saw the modeling industry as the kind of exploitation and objectification and maybe even hypersexualization of of young women. Um, and they wanted other things for me. Um, so I was discouraged from doing it. But but it was really fun. And it exposed me to an entire very complicated and sophisticated industry, which is the fashion industry. I had the opportunity to travel around the world. And many of the programs that I work with and develop now, I work with these relationships that I built through my time, um, really, from from my time in the fashion industry. And, and after that, what does fashion mean to you now? Has it changed since then? Yeah, I think now I see fashion as a real opportunity to model what a sustainable, responsible industry can look like for the rest of the world. I mean, I think fashion, the fashion industry, um, we're, we're, we're trendsetters, we're tastemakers, and I think we genuinely care. Um, and I think there's a real opportunity for us to demonstrate to other industries what sustainability, and by sustainability I mean human rights and environmental concerns, um, what, a, what a pathway to net zero and what 2050 for our industry can look like. We can be a shining example to others. How did your, how did your lecturers at university when you were studying for your PhD feel about you modelling? So I kept it a secret because I was convinced that um, neither my professors nor my students would take me seriously if they knew that I was. How long did you manage to keep it secret for? I kept it secret for many years, I think about four years. And then the San Francisco Chronicle published um, a a massive picture of me in lingerie um, on the front of their style section. And things changed very quickly for me after that. In what way? Um, Oh, gosh. Okay, I've never spoken about this publicly. I left my PhD program because I was sexually harassed. And and I haven't spoken about it publicly because um, in some ways I thought maybe it was my fault. Um, And I think what happens is, you know, one of the messages I would love to share with women today is, ladies, do not protect your abusers. I told no one for many years. And I silently disappeared. And I I think that it's a shame because I think I have a voice that could have been very, very valuable in that space. Um, So... You know, things have changed since the 20-something years since I was in graduate school. Um, and I'm glad that women are lifting their voices and and standing up for themselves. But at the time, I mean, I think the attrition rate in PhD programs for women is something like 70% for myriad reasons, right? Um, but it's a real shame. You still have that voice. And I think that, you know, what we are seeing now is that um, time doesn't protect them. Sure, per- perhaps. I, 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 I would prefer for women to have an opportunity to thrive in this world. And, and here's, here's the point to be made. It's not just West or East. It's not just some amorphous, horrible group of men in the Middle East who are holding women back. It's, it's everywhere. 
Um, so I don't want us to have any illusions about that. And I think that um, we need to have very sober conversations about the ways in which women are, are held back, especially vulnerable women, especially women who have adverse childhood experiences, especially women or, who are historically marginalized. But that's just talking to your situation that, you know, you would look like you're in a position of power, you know, and, and you're you're in that situation where you're, you're studying your PhD. Um, you know, you're you're successful in, in many ways and you've got this um, kind of academic drive. And even when it happened to you, you didn't speak to anyone about it and then left your studies. Is that what happened? Yeah. And retreated into the fashion industry because in some ways it was a safe space for women. Because it's it's an industry that, in a lot of ways, has a lot of female leaders, um, and uh, but it was a retreat. And 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 I and I want to speak to something else, if I may, which is the opposite side of that. When I wanted to leave the fashion industry and to get back to the work, I think it was very hard to get people to take me seriously outside of the industry. How did you change that, or shift that their perceptions of you? <sighs> By doing the work, I mean, I think so in the first instance, what I realized was there was a real opportunity to do fundraising for nonprofit organizations and awareness building campaigns for nonprofit organizations through the fashion industry and through the fashion consumer base. And so it was a question of understanding, okay, well, what skills have I have I developed over the past 20 years? And how can I make those those valuable to that sector? So I wasn't coming back in as a policymaker or a thinker. I was coming back in as a fundraiser because I understood how to create revenue. Um, and, and I understood the importance of kind of uh, the sustainability conversation for the industry. So it was about having a very real, um, realist understanding of, of where I could bring value. And that was the thing that gave me an entryway into the sector. And I, I do think that, and what people sometimes don't realise, um, and as you say, it can too, you know, people don't take people who work in fashion that seriously, but it is what you learn in terms of business, bottom line, and then you can actually apply that to, that strategy to kind of anything. And you came, you came in, it sounds like you came in as a worker and you did the work and, you know, I think then people kind of understand the the, the value that you've brought there. Always coming in as a worker, and even the the glossier stuff that that we see was just you know maybe five percent of the work, right? Of course, it it always is, yeah. Um, and just kind of going back to that to your journey through fashion. So you so were in modeling, and then moved into editing, fashion direction, buying. And you were the global fashion director and head of buying for Stylebop for over five years um, and then became a strategic advisor for nonprofits and businesses. And now, as we said, you're the director of development for Saving Innocence. But fashion focusing on human rights is quite quite the pivot. Um, can you kind of explain what brought you here and what that journey looked like? Sure. I mean, you know, fashion industry for me in a lot of ways was just a way to make a living. And um I think I've always been very, very curious. And over the last decade, there's been this kind of mass global awakening about the climate crisis. And I think 
when I took a really sober assessment of what that meant, right, which is that we are, as a species, facing the greatest existential crisis that we've ever known in humanity and, and, and looking at the way through that. And there is a pathway through that, right? And that pathway presents tremendous opportunities. Um, and a really pragmatic one, for example, is that there's a $17 trillion opportunity in meeting the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Um, a, a more philosophical version of that is that I think now as we are reimagining and re-envisioning systems, processes, and institutions because we have to, we have an opportunity to make them more inclusive, kind, compassionate, um, and caring. And I'd love to be a part of that that conversation. How do you become a bigger part of that conversation? You know, it's not really easy to make these pivots. Uh, and so it's... <laughs> no, no, I know. I, I mean, looking, look, researching you, I, I, it's it's quite it's quite incredible. It's almost like reading about two different people. I, yeah. And the truth is, Kate, that I started out doing this kind of work, right? Because I was on an academic path and I kind of um, uh, uh, fell into the fashion industry because of uh, my experiences as a model. And so I feel like I've kind of come home, to be honest. Um, but I do think that I, I'm really lucky that I got out in, an opportunity to go out into the world, be entrepreneurial, um, and and work on the corporate side because I have a real world understanding, um, which sometimes can get lost in academia. Um, and even in the nonprofit sector. And I think bridging those two things has been very, very helpful to the work. The other thing, you're, you're involved in um, saving innocence. What What is that and how did you get involved with it? Sure. So Saving Innocence is a beautiful charitable organization here in Los Angeles, and they do recovery and restoration of child victims of sex trafficking. Historically, that's the work that they've done. They're now also moving into human trafficking. Um, they're now the official partner uh, for the LA County Anti-Human Trafficking Task Force. Human trafficking is the uh, largest growing criminal enterprise in the world. It's modern day slavery, and it encompasses both labor and sexual exploitation. You know, my involvement with them really came, I think, during the pandemic. I had this feeling of helplessness, and a lot of the work that I was doing was quite global. And I wasn't able to be of service in any way to my community, and there was so much happening in my own backyard. And I really made a commitment at that time um, that once we kind of got back into the swing of things, that I wanted to make sure that I was working and developing programs and helping organizations uh in, in my own community and Saving Innocence works with the most marginalized and vulnerable members of, of our community. And as you've said, um, you're currently developing programs to support the women in Iran. Can you explain what is happening there, what triggered this women-led revolution and what kind of programs you're developing? Sure. So, um, in 1979, the Iranian um, people overthrew a monarchy and ushered in, not by design, um, but really because there was a vacuum of power, what we have today, which is a totalitarian, um, clerical autocracy. And Iranian women have been at the forefront of protest against um, this regime since the beginning. What sparked this most recent uprising was 
that in mid-September, a young Kurdish-Iranian woman by the name of Massa Gina Amini uh, went to visit the capital of Iran, Tehran, with her brother. And while she was there, she was arrested and hauled away by the so-called morality police for supposed improper hijab. Um, while in detention, she went into a coma, and three days later, on September sixteenth, two thousand and twenty-two, uh, she was she had she had died. And when uh, the people of Iran heard about what happened to her, they were outraged. And Iranian women, in solidarity and in protest, spilled out into the streets. They removed their hijab. They set them on fire. And um, what was really interesting is what ensued, which is that entire cross-section, I mean, it really cuts across all of Iranian society, um, poured out into the streets and stood shoulder to shoulder with their Iranian sisters, demanding an end to gender segregation, uh, an end to religious persecution, and an end to ethnic discrimination in Iran. Um, it's been four months since the uprising. Where, where are we standing now? What's, what's happening now? Um, so at present, there are 19,000 peaceful protesters being held uh, in prison as political prisoners. 500 plus protesters were killed by security forces. Um, approximately 70 of them were children. There are approximately 50 to 100 young Iranian protesters right now who are facing imminent um, execution uh, between five to eight uh, young Iranian men, um, some of them as young as 19 and 22, have been executed by public hanging um, in the wake of sham trials behind closed doors um, after having um, given false confessions under torture. Um, there are continued protests in Iran. The government continues to crack down on them. There is very little internet access. Um, and yet the uprising continues. And I, I think one, one more thing that's worth mentioning is, you know, a young Iranian woman who um, in solidarity posts an image of herself without hijab or who steps out of her front door and goes to a protest knows that she, she's not, she's, she's sacrificing her life. And um, this is something that we've known for years, but CNN finally released an investigative report about it. And I just want to say that there's, um, it's a trigger warning because there is um, sexual violence, um, something I'm about to talk about. But um, one of the ways in which the regime um, retaliates against protesters is by using sexual violence, assault and rape in prison. And um, CNN released a special report on this recently. We've known about this for decades. Um, but given Iranian culture and other things, people don't really talk about it. Um, so what these kids are facing is harrowing. And nevertheless, they persist. And it does feel like it's, I mean, it's a woman and a youth movement. It feels like, you know, they, they almost, they, they had nothing left to lose. Yes. I mean, I think a lot of Iranians feel that way. And I think that... Um, they really see, look, Iranian women are the engine. Uh, they're really driving this this particular revolution. But it's all of Iranian society who feel that it's time for real change. They've had this regime for 44 years. It's normal after revolutions to see an excess in revolution. Um, but usually regimes normalize. And unfortunately, this particular regime seems immutable to change. And how are you working with the women there? 
Well, we're developing programs here, a, a part of the larger diaspora community, um, to elevate their voices. We're doing fundraising programs. We're doing media. We're reaching out to uh, industry and colleagues and influencers, making sure to keep the spotlight on Iranian women to amplify their voices. Social media, you know, it has its pros and cons. And I do think in this way that... Um, you know, people are making sure that people can educate themselves and do know what's happening there. Absolutely. And I think two things here. One is that it gives Iranians inside of Iran tremendous courage to know that they have international support and that we're standing behind them and that they're not sacrificing themselves in vain and that they're not dying in the dark. So the more we share their stories, um, the more courage it gives them. And also because of the JCPOA and the government's nuclear talks, um, they are trying to kind of rehabilitate their image. And the more we keep what is happening in the spotlight, the more one, on the one hand, we stay their hand at executions, which is what is happening to political protesters now. Um, and at the same time, we also uh, encourage them to moderate their behavior in certain ways because they want to keep good relations with the rest of the world so that they can get sanctions lifted and find a, find a nuclear deal. Yeah, I mean, the stories that are coming out, the ones that we're seeing anyway, are are terrifying. And it's unbelievable it's happening now. How would you encourage others to, to help? It's a really good question. I mean, I think the most important thing we can do right now um, at the time that we're recording this is to encourage our governments to recall their ambassadors from Iran as a show of displeasure from what the regime is doing on the one hand. On the second hand, in the EU and the UK, there's a real opportunity to influence our parliamentarians to do something called political sponsorship. Um, political sponsorship is highly effective in staying the regime's hands um, in the face of executing these young protesters. So if MPs politically sponsor these young kids who are at facing imminent risk of execution, um, generally speaking, uh, we can save their lives. It's, in it's inspiring. I mean, just looking at the, at the work that you've done and the attention that you've brought to it as well, which is as important. But knowing, knowing, I mean, as I said, just some of those stories that are coming out of, of Iran, it's a, it's a career that demands a lot from you. And, um, and I'm sure there's, you know, you have knowledge of situations that's going on that we, that we don't see, but how do you deal with those traumas and how do you kind of overcome it in your, in your day to day? Thank you for this, this question. I think it's a really, um, important question. And, you know, one of the many gifts that we were given by the Black women's liberation movement was this concept of self-care. This idea that, you know, when you go into an airplane, they say you put your oxygen mask on first. And so in order to be able to be of service, I think it's really important in anything that we do, right? In any work that we do, we need to take care of ourselves. Personally, my practice in involves a, a mindful meditation practice. I'm a practicing Tibetan Buddhist. I have a devoted uh, yogi practice um, and I spend a lot of time in nature. Um, I'm very lucky to be in Los Angeles. I can go to the ocean or disappear into the wild of the Santa Monica Mountains um, and I find those things help me to really regulate my nervous system so that I can be fortified um, and strong as this information comes my way so that I can continue to do the work and, um, and, and, and be a spokesperson. Are you as disciplined in that way as you are 
like applying to your career? Because I think even if with something like meditation, that takes that takes discipline, even just to learn it and to be like, I, I know I can be able to sit down and just take 15 minutes out just to do this. It's, it's as important as anything else. Yes. Uh, listen, I'm like anybody. I, I've just come back from from um, winter holidays and, and I fell out of my practice uh, during that period. But that's allowed. Uh, <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and but nevertheless, no, once I'm back in my routine, yeah, I find my way back to it. And some days, um, you know, one of the interesting things about yoga is that some days you're really strong and powerful in your body. And in other days, you're not. You're really soft and you just can't do it. And I think it's about having that conversation with yourself about where you are um, and checking in. And that's the most important thing. And then finally... As obviously we we think you are, and you definitely are a champion of change. I think the work you're doing is incredible. But who are the champions of change who are inspiring you? Yeah, like like I said earlier, the women of Iran are um, are my heroes, and they are the champions of change right now, and they're really standing up for all of us. Um, and you know, very specifically Nasrin Sutudeh, who's an Iranian human rights lawyer who has dedicated her life to this work. She spent 13 years in prison every time she's handed down a sentence. It's something uh, abominable, like 40 years in prison and 178 lashes. She's stoic in the face of it. She's one of those people who goes into prison and ends up reforming the prison system from within. Um, she's the Nelson Mandela of Iran, and it's my most ardent wish and desire to one day be able to cast my ballot um, for Nasrin Sutdeh as president of a free and liberated Iran. Thank you so much, and thank you for taking the time. That's um, incredible, incredible to speak to you. Um, as I say, you are a true inspiration. Thank you guys so much. I really, uh, I really appreciate being here with you this morning. Thank you. <laughs> Champions of Change was brought to you by Netaporte and Chalk and Blade. Hosted by Netaporte's content director Alice Casely Hayford and fashion director Kay Barron. The team at Netaporte was Katie Barrington as the senior editor, with casting by Annabelle Brog and Olivia Wakefield, and coordination by Erin Shanahan. The producer at Chalk and Blade was Laura Hyde. Original music by Alexis Adamora and the series was mixed by Nasson De Silva. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review and tell us who your champions of change are. <laughs>